Okay, perfect. Um, right, hi guys, it's uh, Joel here from Rams in White, the property finance podcast, and uh, we're joined today with a good friend of mine and property developer based in South Wales, uh, Dorian Payne. So uh, me and Dorian actually met a little while back at a property uh, developers club that we're both involved in, in London, called Candor. Um, so me and uh, Dorian shared the train home, we discussed each other's businesses, what's going on, and looking how, how we can progress our businesses in the future. And I thought it'd be a great uh, opportunity for him to jump on and share his insights to his business and what he's building and what's going on in the market at the moment for some of our listeners. So just like to welcome Dorian. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. No, absolutely. My pleasure, Joel. Thank you for having me on. I'm really looking forward to it. Brilliant. Thank you. So Dorian, let's jump straight in and tell us a bit more about your company and what you guys do. Sure. So our company is called Castell Group, uh, C-A-S-T-E-L-L. Uh, I normally pronounce this Castell because most of the people I deal with are like English or over the bridge. So yeah. when I say the normal, the Welsh word version of it, Castell, they think I've just got a lisp. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, so, so I, I, uh, I, yeah, so I say it that way. But we specialise in providing or developing and delivering high quality social and disabled homes throughout South Wales. And we do that by collaborating with private investors. And yeah, our main clients are housing associations and care sort of providers, charities across South Wales. So that's what we sort of specialize in. And the benefit of obviously doing that is that in the majority of our um, developments, our exit is effectively with forward selling, with forward selling our developments. So trying to take that one risk away. Amazing. And, and how, did, like, how did you get into property? What, what's behind uh, Castell Group? What, what, what made you want to get into development? What's going on sure. behind the scenes? So I'm quite fortunate. I've been involved in property since I was quite young. My, my dad's a builder. Um, my mum was a stay-at-home mum and they became sort of accidental landlords. Um, and they did that. My, my dad bought a house, the same house, the same street his brother was on. When they moved in, they had a bit of a bust up and then my dad had to go and buy another house. But they kept the first one and rented it. So kind of started that way and then over the years they managed to acquire some more uh, properties and when I was in high school I started helping my mum manage them at home so that really I suppose I was exposed to property as a, a young age and I'm really grateful for that but ever since that time I always knew I always wanted to be into property but I've got this little habit of being extremely ambitious and so instead of I've, I've always known that I was going to build a big property business but I've never really had small goals. So I've never really had the goal of just owning, you know, 10 or 20 properties and kind of having enough income to have a nice life. For some reason, I've just always decided that I'm, yeah, I'm going to build something so big that, uh, that basically it, it will out, outlive me effectively. That's, that's, that's the plan. I'm not sure where that's come from, but, um, and then because of the experience I had from the property side of things over the years, I set up a letting agency just as I left school. Um, I, did, I, did, I did various things that uh, we'll probably get into, but I was always involved in, in some form of business, trying to grow a business. Mm -hmm. And uh, But yeah, from the property perspective, I set the letting agency up, uh, scaled it into an estate agency. I pretty much made every mistake you can, well, most mistakes you can make as a business owner. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I had a lot of fun doing that and loads of experience. And I'm fortunate that I managed to just do as much and do as many mistakes as possible at a young age where I didn't have as many responsibilities. But fast forward sort of a few years, I sold the business um, and to a competitor, started working with private investors to do my own project. And it started with the, with the usual stuff, residential um, sort of refurbishments into commercial conversions, then single, single land developments. And then I met my sort of business partner now, Darren, who's a project manager, who was a project manager for housing association developments. Yeah. He's working for housing association, doing a, doing a big site for them. And then he started, I, I was looking at the site and I was doing private developments. And two things happened in a short time. Firstly, um, I had another, I would class uh, short-term advertisement where I had a private site and I, could, I finished it and I had investors involved and I couldn't sell it. So what I realized quite then was that the risk, my personal risk appetite was lower than I thought it was. Mm. Like most people, when you first set out in sort of property, all you really 
well, think of the majority of times is the benefits in terms of if I do this and, and, and make 10 apartments, for example, and sell it for a million, I'm going to make 200,000, just, just easy figures. But what you forget to say is that if you sell it at that price, you hopefully you will make the 200,000 if your costs have come in and you haven't overran, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. So there's a lot of stuff behind it, which I just ignored. Um, and I just went ahead. There's one but, thing of, uh, sorry to interrupt, but there's one thing of having uh, overrunning on uh, uh, costs on, say, like a buy, refurb, refinance, light kind of uh, small buy to let. But there's a, it's a huge difference when you start looking at developments and GDVs in the millions, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, so, so yeah, it's the cost. There's, there's, there's three key risks. Well, there's, there's a lot of risks in development, but the one big risk you have is your exit risk, your market risk. Um, so, so can you self once you've finished it? Because you go, the actual time it takes to get a site from like an initial lead all the way through to actually start building takes a while, but then, then you've got to actually build it out. So normally by the time it takes you to find the lead to actually build it out on a site, I don't know, about, you know, between 10, 15 units, something like that, it's probably going to take you about 18 months at least mm. from, from lead to, you know, to actually having it finished then you've got to sell it. So if you can't sell it, then you've gone through all that work, not really had any money to show for it. Um, and that, that can really affect you. But again, if your build costs go over, you, that's another big risk is actual build delivery and the cost of it and how you procure things that way. If your build time goes over, you're going to be really, you're going to be hit quite large on your finance side of things, as you know, Joel, mm -hmm. but if your build costs go over and your time goes over and your GDV drops, you, you very quickly turn into a, a, a high risk profile. Uh, you become a motivated seller effectively because you have to exit. And how do you, and this, I guess your strategy is key for what, for the, mitigating the risk, but how do you, how do you mitigate that risk as much as possible as a developer? I mean, say you're a, you know, you've jumped straight in at the deep end, but you, you know, you, you're very credible. You made a lot of mistakes early on. You've got the right partners around you. Um, but say someone's built up, you know, a substantial portfolio, they've done a few conversions, and okay, now I want to go into development, and go, right, there's a lot of risk here, or I could be exposed to risk, which could um, effectively have a downside on my business in the background, um, sure. if I'm using leverage, etc. How would you, like, let an, an, a, new a new developer, like, mitigate that risk? What, what points would you give them? Sure. So there's, there's a couple of key points, actually. And, and really, they've all devised from my mistakes, being honest with you, about what the things we do now in our business have literally all come from the mistakes that we've made. You don't really learn many things from successes, believe it or not. Mm. When, when you've done something successfully, um, there's not really many things in it. Because the one key thing people forget is like in a rising market or in, in favorable conditions, market conditions, any mistake you make gets, gets masked. So if you've done something what's deemed to be successful in a rising market, you think that you've done something right and you do it again. But if the market stores or falls or freezes like we're in now, any mistake you've made, which you did, which would have been master rising one, now can be now can literally turn catastrophic. So bro, I'll explain how some mitigation things just to quickly. So uh, just because this will this will recap into it. When I met Darren then um, and I sort of had a bit of a problem on my private schemes. Darren was telling me about the, from the construction side, how, how it works for the affordable housing sector. Because that was something I always avoided because like most people do, they think, oh, affordable, you're going to lose money. There's no point yeah. doing it. Um, so you just avoid it, which I did as well, hands up. So I spoke to Darren about it. And then I started looking at it from a commercial perspective. And I thought, God, this could actually be a really good opportunity here. So fast forward, me and Darren went into business together um, and we've got, multiple different sites now we average between seven and 20 our unit size per site mm -hmm. um but to come back to your question the way we mitigate things now and how we do it there's two things so firstly one thing i would say the majority of people getting into developments do this they get into developments for the money so they get into developments because they want to make a lot of money now that's where the majority of mistakes lie chasing the money that's where the majority of my business mistakes have made in any business i've done i've always wanted well originally I always wanted to become a mega multimillionaire for some reason and have a yacht at the age of, I don't know, 21, something stupid. But, <laughs> but the problem with that is that when you look at decisions, you're only looking at it from a monetary perspective and you're actually kidding yourself on the risks that it'll go wrong. Mm -hmm. And you're just saying, if I do this, I'll make 200,000, for example. 
but that that is actually quite risky so what we do now is we make money a byproduct of just the service and products that we offer so we realized that look, uh, if we if we find a site and it matches our our criteria and if we can put 10 units on there for example 10 homes uh, we already know roughly how much we're going to get for them how much they'll cost as long as we secure the land for x price and we deliver it on time to a good quality the profit is just a byproduct so you've got to have clear criteria as to what you're looking for preparation is key in development and not being afraid to look at the risks so there's risks in everything you do and risk isn't a bad thing you just need to understand that you need to look at risk basically face on, head on, and you need to highlight where things can go wrong. Um, and, and you need to try and put mitigation measures in place because if those risks turn into reality, you'll be ready. I think so, another thing you were mentioning to me before, Dorian, was the, the, the processes and procedures you have in place. Um, yeah, that's you literally that's writ, like have written like a step-by-step -step guide for like your whole entire business, haven't you? Yeah, so I do a lot of reading and like personal self-development. Um, I've read many books about successful businesses, etc. And one one good book, obviously, you all know the business McDonald's and grinding it out by Ray Kroc. And you realise that majority of really successful businesses they've got this inherent obsession with uh, perfection, but also making sure that their business and the way it's run um, is measurable in every instance. And the only way you can get your business to be measurable, i.e. so you can measure the performance of it, is if you, put key, if you put processes and systems in place that record data for you. So what we do, which is one, all of this is what it's effectively doing is reducing the risk. So we have a process and system in place for every part of the business, like you just said. And the development process ourselves all starts with, we don't really have like a one page appraisal sheet for every development site we have like a workbook that we work through as a site progresses from lead all the way through to completion. And in each stage, it's broken down into what we should be looking at. So, so you don't forget, but also what, what that's doing is that it's effect, effectively, anybody in your business shouldn't forget to ask the relevant questions because it's documented as a manual effectively. Um, so now when I get sites brought to me, part of the process we got in place is that it goes through a, a three-step appraisal. So we check the initial assessment, planning assessment, and then the high-level numbers. That gets brought to me with those three things already done. So when I check it over, I know exactly what I'm looking for, where the risks are, just from our previous experience. Brilliant. So you've almost got a roadmap, haven't you? And, so, and, and it's scalable then, isn't it? I guess it's the McDonald's model. Yeah, because like again, coming back to the ambition, I mean, our our ambition for Castell Group is to grow it to developing 500 homes per annum, mm -hmm. and the only way to do that, oh, you know, that's an eight to ten year plan. The only way to do that is by having systems in place that that allow your business to become scalable. If it's just you, a one man band, and you'll know all your figures and numbers in your head, that's well and good for one or two sites, but you can't really do many more than that. Um, it's not scalable. Exactly. Um... And, and so let's talk about your, you know, your model again and get into a bit more detail in there for the audience, uh, Dorian. So you, you focus on how many units per site? So originally um, at the moment, it was seven, between seven and 20, but it's yeah. just been upped, well, hopefully post-coronavirus from between 10 and 25. That's, that's what we'll be looking at mainly. And you are, how, talk to us about the like the specification you have to build to like how talk so obviously you're you have a very niche target market don't you but that sure. almost if you do it that way you get your exit let's talk about the exit yeah. negotiations and, and how all that works all right cool so yeah so look um so i've done private sites as i've already said and when when it went wrong um i realized that effectively i wasn't able to or i didn't have the risk appetite to um go through with like market uh, market dips, market depressions or freezes. So I was looking for a way and then I come across Darren to think, right, how can, I re how can I reduce the risk in development? And as we already know, one big risk in development is your exit. That is a huge risk. Uh, you can do all the work and you can do everything right, but if you can't sell it, then you're still in big trouble. So we thought, right, how you working with potential affordable housing providers or effectively forward selling your sites, if you can find a buyer for your site first, you are a credible buyer that is, you can 
you know, reduce the risk heavily. That's why a lot of people sell off plan um, as fast as they can uh, with big marketing campaigns. And, and they invest a lot in the marketing of their sites to try and just get those sales locked in. So it's reducing the risk, each, each sale reduces the risk. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing. So effectively, at the, like I said, we specialize in social and disabled homes. So we uh, work with charities and housing associations, non-for-profit organizations that help alleviate the current affordable housing crisis by providing these types of homes. Now, each, so the way it works is like, at the moment in Wales, um, they have a, a central government target to develop X amount of affordable homes. So between 2016 and 2021, the target was 20,000 affordable homes. And what they then do is they split down into each local authority how many units should be delivered approximately in each authority. Then that authority uh, speaks to their zoned housing associations or RSLs or providers, registered providers. And then each provider comes up with a target of how many homes they should be developing in each area. So that's just a high level, roughly how it works. So what we do is we develop relationships with those providers and look, they've been forced to become developers themselves. And some housing associations or providers have literally become really good developers that they could rival even some national house builders development teams, for example. Um, so they have a lot of resources behind them, but we target the housing associations that have targets and they are under resourced to deliver them. So for example, we work with one housing association, they've got a target of delivering 75 homes per year. Uh, do you know how many homes they delivered this year? No idea. Zero. Wow. So, and what yeah, does that so, mean to them then? So who's put, they're getting pressure on them? So they, it... Yeah. So they get pressure because obviously they get some grant or funding allocated for them to do yeah. the homes but they have pressure from their board for not achieving the targets they have pressure from local authority because they should be developing if they're you know an active rsl so you're you're effectively solving their problem you're coming in and give, providing the solution which is yeah, so, business isn't it yeah exactly so we we're trying to find those housing associations where we can add value to because the model, once you peel back the layers, I could probably talk about this for a lot longer, but when you peel back the layers, you actually can't just work with any housing association because some of them are geared up in certain ways where there's such good developers themselves, you're actually competing against them. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a funny one, but look, they've been forced to be developers and that, that then means there's opportunities for those that are not able to develop in a way. They don't maybe don't have the development skills or the team or resource beyond them. So we go into them and we say this, say, look, uh, we find out what areas they operate in. And we basically say that we, we've got a site or we'll find a site, we'll secure it, we'll take it through planning. At the moment, the way we do it is we fund it and we'll build it. They've just got to agree in advance to buy them off us for a pre-agreed uh, purchase price. And then that's working well for us at the moment because there's two, way, there's two key ways to work with housing associations. Is what's called turnkey solution, which is what we do. So again, we find it, we fund it, we build it, etc. They buy it at the end, and then there's what's called a package deal, whereby you find it and secure it, but they'll buy the site off you, and they will fund you as well. So you forward sold it, but you're also getting it forward funded too. Mm. Now that's obviously a good model. However, that's much more of a contracting model. So you have to have become like a contractor to do that. Yeah. So the first model is kind of something you're leaning more towards or do you kind of operate in both spaces? So at, at the moment, the first model is what we do. However, yeah. we've set up a construction company and the way we do it now is our construction company gets the contract for each of our off, you know, turnkey sites. So um, our SPV companies and over the next couple of years, as our construction company becomes credible as a construction company itself mm -hmm. that will then qualify to do package deals so we'll then have our sites forward funded as well as forward sold so that's what you know that's what we're working towards amazing and then um the, the target of 500 uh, homes per annum is that in the social and affordable housing space or are you looking at new just any new builds then or how does that work so, so at the moment we just we've just niched or niched, however you explain it, uh, into social and disabled homes. So our goal is to develop 500 uh, affordable and disabled homes, you know, across, not, we'll have to branch out of South Wales to do that. Uh, we'll, we'll end up probably going into the Southwest, but the goal, the reason for that, uh, just modeling back rough prices, 
is effectively to grow the company to a certain size where it's attractive to either float or uh, become part, be, be, be acquired by a much larger player as potentially their social division. Because um, most larger house builders, you know, they, 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 do, they do this as well. On larger sites, they, work, they collaborate massively with um, housing associations as well as doing private. So they do, they do both, basically. It's amazing. There's a book, isn't there, called um, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And, and one of the habits is uh, start with the end in mind, right? So I guess that you, what you're demonstrating there is... Yeah, I got that book. Yeah, a big vision. This is where we want to be. We all want to float or we want to be part of uh, a larger player in the market and then work backwards from there and, and have all your systems and processes in place, which is, is great. If you don't have that goal or vision, how can you... Yeah, so... so... So why well, they they say the same as well, isn't it? Like uh, they say the analogy with a car is like if 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 you just jump in your car and start driving, how do you know where you, where you're actually going to go? You yeah. don't. If you normally you go in your car because you you're using that as a vehicle to get to your end in mind destination, and that's one of the biggest one of the biggest sort of business tips you can give people is when they set up a business. Cranfield Business School do it. They, they have the three W's. The, the first one is start with, right, where, am, where are you now? So look at your existing resources. So how much money do you have available? How much time? What's your existing knowledge level? Which, what's, what current relationships or collaborate, of collaborative partners do you have around you? So like, look, look, look at everything you've got currently now. Then the next step is to say, right, where am I going? So where you know, what do you want? Why, why are you getting into development? Is it genuinely to make 200,000 or are you looking to do something more? Are you looking to contribute? Are you looking to add value to society, et cetera, and build a business from doing that? Because most successful businesses, yes, they're profitable and they make money. But the reason they do that is because they're solving some problem. They're adding value to society. The more value you can add, money is genuinely a byproduct from in successful businesses. Those businesses that just chase money, like I used to, very quickly find failure because that isn't that short-lived it's short-lived more you focus on value etc and to do that you need to think heavily of where you're going build that sort of business plan that that vision in your mind then the third step that cranfield business school teaches how do i get there so once you know because because it, it's good it's good to have that plan in mind about what i want and uh, really what you want to visualize it and then how can you get there but unless you really understand and be honest with yourself about your current position, then you can't build a good action plan to get there. And I'll give you an example. If you're starting right now and you want to do a one million pound development site, for example, but you've got 50,000 pounds of debt, you've got zero savings and you're working 60 hours a week in a job just getting by and you've got bad credit, for example, it doesn't mean you can never do it. However, I would change your plan. And I would break that further down. Your first goal should be to get debt free and then, and then maybe to increase your credit score and to get some disposable additional income in somehow. That's your first goal. Then, then you can start looking at development stuff. Because one big, one big thing I did wrong, um, I wouldn't change anything looking back, but, but I could have made my life a lot easier, is that I, like you said before, I jumped in straight at the deep end. And most businesses I've been involved with I didn't really get a sufficient understanding of the business before I started up in it. So I've never really been employed. For example, I've just mainly always been self-employed. The problem with that is I've never really learned everything I needed to know. I've just thought I can do this and I set a business up and learned majority of the mistakes as they come forward. Now you don't have to do that because it's cost me a massive amount of money and time. I wouldn't change it now, but I wouldn't recommend people do that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's no harm in if you want to work in a certain industry or set up a business in an industry, there's no harm in going and getting experience in that industry first. Oh. Um, I worked for commercial brokerage before setting up Rams in White. I worked for a residential brokerage before, you know, going to the commercial brokerage. And ultimately that taught me how not to do it, not, not to run a business and implement certain things that will make the business more successful. So it cost me 18 months of my time but actually once the business was set up we hit the ground running straight away um yeah. so i think yeah don't discredit getting experience elsewhere before jumping in especially with development there's a lot of developers out there that um take on um apprentices or young staff members you know in different in different kind of roles to kind of get experience and help their business basically 
Yeah, because look, at the moment, um, we're, we're in a bit of an age really where, um, and you, you've probably noticed this, everyone's impatient. I mean, look, I, I was a big, I was, a big um, I was in this category for years from the time I was 16, probably up until 22, something like that, 20, maybe, maybe, maybe slightly later. And all, I was in the wrong category of, I wanted everything and I wanted it now where because i was in a rush for some reason i felt like i don't know where i got this from but i felt like i needed to retire at 30 for some reason but the thing is you see that as well and I st i'm seeing it like I, because i'm con because i've done done this i'm conscious of seeing this in people and especially in property circles it's it's in, it's it's rife in property circles because maybe it's course or training providers or the way they sell things i don't know but um I, i'm a big believer in education and training I, I i still educate myself on a daily basis but ultimately sometimes people get told that they should leave their job and they should become financially free and you can do that within 12 months for example and what that does is that spurs people on making very very rash decisions and rushing now those are that there if look if you can put three terrible things in in, in line to, to easily increase your chance of making a mistake. It is one, chasing money, two, making rash decisions, and three, being in a rush. If you do all those three things, you have literally turned the tables. You, you're more likely to make a mistake than if you was rash, if you were, you were uh, logical, you was not rushing, um, you was understanding that look, this is a process, and the more you can build your knowledge and your understanding of things, and reduce your risk this is the big thing the more you can do that over time you will become successful but you you know the, the thing with developments as well like some other businesses if you make a, if you make a mistake that's really big um, you can uh, you know you you can set yourself back years so like like you just said you can invest 18 months of your time get paid to learn learn how you wouldn't do things learn learn exactly what you want to build and how you want to build it or you can go and do something for three months, make a huge mistake potentially, and then set yourself back four years. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think what some of the people, uh, the most smartest and best investors or successful investors we work with, um, they've spent, you know, a, a, a substantial amount of time learning in the background, and that might become through like reading, social media, um, videos, uh, interviews, networking and on that on the job experience and they gather all this information and they put their plan together and start uh they put toe dipping into the into the business and eventually once they've got everything figured out all their systems processes they, they kind of rock it other people jump in at the deep end and some some swim and get on with it and figure it all out some uh, unfortunately sink because they don't have the resources around around them or the resilience to to get through it and that's a really scary place to be in we we see that as a brokerage where uh people have gone on a course um for a weekend and then up on the friday to sunday and then on the monday they're quitting their job and they're saying joe i'm a full-time property investor and um i'm going to do property fantastic good for you what, you know where's your proof you don't have any provable income anymore because you've just quit your job there's minimal savings available you've got no other assets in the background so it's really like you've jumped in at the deep end because you've made a rash decision you was in a rush yeah. to get there you want to tell everyone on social media you quit your job yeah but it's like that really is a sink or swim situation and the chances are uh, are less greater it, rather than if you've gone bought one by to let got experience built up a bit of capital started networking get the right investors around you start building your solicitors your brokers you know your conveyances yeah. your building team developing team around you and then actually gives you a much more stronger position uh to, to push through and make that business a success oh 100 yeah i mean i i agree with everything you've said there 100 and, and literally it just comes down to like there's no need to rush i don't know you just don't have to rush i mean I, you know I, I i've done that for years and now it's quite, it's quite, I'm quite, uh, it's quite a nice feeling at the moment for me where I, I'm no longer in a huge rush. Don't get me wrong. I'm still very ambitious and still want to push the business every single day, mm -hmm. but I, I can, I'm, I'm also conscious. I catch myself. Like I'm saying to myself, look, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if it takes me 10 or 15 or 20 years. Yeah. I just want to enjoy the process of what you do. And you're not, you're not making critical, critical mistakes or you're not under pressure because the problem with that, like you just said, then is they have to do a deal. Otherwise, they cannot pay something, for example. Now, that means they shouldn't be in that position. It's good to have some pressure, don't get me wrong, but, but not, if you're putting, uh, not if you're putting potentially uh, your sort of livelihood on the line. 
And then the other thing to just touch on, what some people resort and doing then is working with investors. To like they, they like you said, they don't have any capital themselves, but then they're using this this age saying, uh, "I'm now time rich but cash poor." So I'm looking for someone that's cash cash rich and time poor, for example. Now that could be good. However, the problem, the only thing I would say about this, like we work with investors um, on a continuous basis, and one and we work with investors where they've gone wrong as well. It, so it's never the thing about properties, like any business, you will have ups and you will have downs. And we've done deals where we've we personally not made any money and made sure the investors got their capital back plus mm. a return, because sometimes things do go wrong. Now the one thing to remember is this: that money, you can always make money back, you know, one time or another. But reputation in this day and age, once you've lost reputation, all it takes is a Google search, and that's it. You 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 have a very very difficult time coming back from a loss of reputation in this current in this current digital world. Yeah, what's that old saying? It takes years to build a reputation, moments to lose it. It oh, pays to lose yeah. something with it. Yeah, so I mean, it's, so, it's so true. I mean, it's like, if you, if you think about it, if you, if you're, uh, do you cycle, Joe? Yeah, yeah, I did a, I did actually a, a half Ironman. A lot, oh. uh, when was it last year? I don't know why, but um, I did a oh, bit, well. I had to do quite a bit of cycling for that and I was really underprepared. But um, yeah, I do a bit of cycling. Well, if you think about it, because because I've I've started cycling recently, and for some and I always listen to sort of business books, etc. When I'm riding uh, cycling and I'm going up this huge hill, and there's one by me, it takes me ages to get up there, and it's not you know it's just steep. It takes me ages to get up there, and it literally takes me half a minute to cycle all the way down. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, Bus yeah. Great analogy. Businesses, yeah, it's just like that. So, yeah, it's a funny one. Um, okay, cool. Let's let's talk about investors. Eh? So you you've worked with investor investors. How um, talk us about that? How do you work with investors? You know, how do you qualify them? What do you offer? So, so again, I've worked with um, investors where I would deem the right way, the wrong way. Um, and but the most important thing is that just because of the mentality, I've always made sure that I've I've, I've had their in, interest in in hat purely because of following that principle where I don't mind if I personally don't make any money but I don't want to lose or, or get a bad reputation. And most every investor we work with now, uh, the biggest thing about this, right, and is that if I could say, if you're going to work with investors, you need to make sure you have a criteria, that everything starts with a criteria. Don't really worry about the deal. Have a criteria for the type of investor you want to work with. Now, there are unsophisticated investors out there. They're, they're sophisticated. They're very smart investors. There's a whole range of people. Everyone has a different personality. But one thing I would say with an investor is that you need to you need to be making them aware of the risks in the deal. And now that sounds like you could be scuppering getting an investment. But the one thing you don't want in any deal you do you should be highlighting the risks, right? And then you should be putting mitigation measures in place. So, you know, for for as, for as much as you know, nobody knew about coronavirus, for example. But uh, one of the risks in in property development going forward is what if we have to shut the site for whatever reason? And that doesn't have to be coronavirus. It could have been an accident or yeah. it could have been that we've uh, dug up some bones. So the whole site gets closed down until archaeologists go through it. So, you know, there's a whole risk of site that get closed for, for a lot of reasons. And what, you know, what does that do? But the reason for saying that is the more you can think about the potential risks, what you're actually being able to do there is to solve subconscious questions investors may have is to, you know, like if you think about it, if you were going to invest 100,000 or 200,000 into someone's deal, uh, then you need to be asked, you need to know what, what kind of questions you would want asked. And putting the foot, shoe on the other foot, as they say. So if you think about it from an investor's point of view, that will increase your likelihood of working with them. But yeah, highlight the risks and then structure that in a way where you're, where you're presenting to them that this is potentially what could happen and this is what we would do if it does happen. And actually what you end up doing then is building confidence because majority of things about working with investor. But the, the, one of the keys of it is, is the rapport, is the relationship. Yes, the deal has to work. But if you speak to any serial investors, they will tell you time and time again that they look at many deals that do work, but they don't invest in them. And that's because even if a deal does work on paper, everybody knows it's about who's delivering them. Because mm. you, you can get any deal that works and you can also make it not work. Like you literally take any deal and you just change some figures on appraisal spreadsheet and you can make that deal that look like it work, not work. Yeah. And whether the, whether that's justified or not, really, the bottom line is it's got to work in an, like an, an average model, taking into account the risks. But you've really got to be 
proven yourself. You've got to build a good rapport. You've got to be showing them that you've thought about the risk, how you're protecting their money, what security they're having, what can they expect, you know, how are you going to keep them communicated, etc. So the more you can do that, the easier it will become and the better relationship you'll have. So that, that's a couple of advice tips I would say. So I think the art of communication is key. And I think any developers we've worked with that have, um, have raised private finance, it's always about, as you mentioned, you know, finding out what's important to the client, the investor, what works for them, have they invested before, what terms do yeah. they invest on? You know, if you just go, go in and say, we're offering this, bang, 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 you know, it might not work for them. It not, might be against their risk appetite, what they're looking to borrow. You might oversell yourself as well. Yeah, um, and the, the, the majority of money that we've raised, we've, we've not actually, like on, on the initial conversation, asked for it. So obviously there will always be a time where you need to say that I have a deal, are you interested in investing in, for example? But the way we normally do it is when we start speaking to potential investors, we just start talking about the things we've done and the like investors we work with and what, what it is we specialize in and how it works. And only if they're interested, they start asking more questions. And later on down the line, then they'll, they'll normally say, do you have any potential deals or do you work with other investors? And then it will come or they'll say, if you have anything else, will you let me know? That's how we do it. Um, so it's about building that relationship. But don't, don't forget as well, don't, again, don't chase the money as much. If you're speaking to someone and you don't feel it's a good fit to work with them for whatever reason, then, but, but they've, they've got the money for you, you would probably have a more stressful time working with them than if you just didn't, or if you, if, and then if you just spent some more time trying to find someone else or maybe not even did the deal. Yeah. You know, business, this business, this property business, is something that you should be thinking about for the long term, about building a business that you really like and enjoy and want to dedicate a significant part of your life to. So don't just chase money and work with people that you don't like or it's going to cause a problem just for the sake of doing a deal. Yeah, I think that the beauty of business is actually you can work with who you want to work with. You know, mm. people get caught up in trying to do deals left, right and centre, get that money in and nervous. But actually, if they take a step back and just reflect on, you know, why did they set that business up? you know, what's important to them, what, what they, what's their brand about, um, and get yeah. the right people to work with. Um, yeah. and they'll have a more durable experience. So let, let's talk a bit more about what, what deals have you got going on at the moment? And I know you look at a lot of deals, you've got live sites, and maybe then we'll talk about how the impact of the economy is affecting and how you're dealing with that. Sure, yeah. So we have just over 200 homes in the pipeline, and that is a mixture of sites we already own, yeah. sites we have an option, and sites that are currently in legals, which may or may not go ahead, we're not 100% sure as of yet. But we have, we have two live sites right now that are in construction. Yeah. Um, the the aim is to not really drop under three, so we've uh, we, we're trying to get another one over. But again, not being motivated enough to do a bad deal. Yeah. The thing the thing with development right is that it takes time. Everything takes time, and you're not really in control most of the time. <laughs> about what you know like for example planning we've got sites in planning that seem like they're going well but you just can never be sure you can you just never know what's going to happen with planning but yeah so we're building uh, we've got nine flats now that are in construction all of our sites are closed at the moment due to the current pandemic mm -hmm. but yeah, we've got nine flats we're building that's sold to a housing association and we've got another one which is 10 flats and one house that's also sold to a housing association um but uh, due to the coronavirus, our sites are currently closed, but we're trying to focus on those that are in the pre-construction stage. Yeah. So the the actual effort it takes to get a site where you can start putting a shovel in the ground is quite it's quite significant. I mean, we've 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 broken our business into like um an organisational chart to show each each role in each section of the business, and we try to do an order. Mm -hmm. And let's just say there's ten parts to it. The build stage is actually stage eight so yeah yeah there's so much to do before. so there's a lot lot that goes in on in the background before even getting on site basically yeah but yeah. we've got so but yeah we've we've got a handful i mean we've got uh, another site now that's in planning for 12 apartments with three disabled mm -hmm. we've got another for nine houses um we've got one for 16 apartments and one bungalow for 24 apartments for a mixture of 23 apartments houses and bungalows uh eight houses so yeah, but there's, there's basically a list of them and, and we, we own six sites. Uh, we have three in options, signed options, and then we have three that are in legals that we're not too sure what's gonna happen with them as of yet. 
Okay, perfect. And and obviously we spoke about investors. So investors put some of the money in. You can use your own money, but, and also you can use uh, the uh, traditional kind of bank funding. Obviously, this is a finance podcast as well. So we'll talk a bit about finance. What what kind of finance institutions have you worked with, Dorian, to kind of put that in place? How have you found that process? Yeah, sure. So so right when the business started out, and this is so businesses is a continuing learning curve, even like every day. If you're not learning, you're going backwards. But our business finance model started with joint ventures. So we would um, we would find a site. We have a sort of, so the two like two pipelines. We'd have a pipeline for investors, pipeline for deals. We build the relationships with potential investors, and as and when deals came along, we would try and match one up. And then yes, yeah, so we would work with investors. They would fund um, the full equity amount, and they would get a share of the of the deal in an SPV company. And then when it gets to the relevant stage, we would work with sort of senior lenders, traditional senior lenders, like in Wales, we're working with Development Bank of Wales, for example, you probably know them, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're a bit slow, uh, just to, to, to say the least. Yeah. So, you know, we, we work with the likes of them, but um, we had other terms agreed with uh, United Trust Bank as well, um, Lloyds Bank. Yeah. Uh, we're doing it. But then, Fast forward now, the, model, the funding models change. So we split our we split our business in two because the first way with joint ventures is great, but the type of business we were growing in terms of 500 homes, for example, under Castell Group, uh, for that to be in a position to potentially float or sell on, if you're splitting our lineup into loads of different SPV companies with loads of different shares or there's shares with joint venture partners, it's very difficult to value the company um, very good on that basis. So we've changed the model now. It's become actually a development company itself. And we've got two different lines of funding. So we've got what's called pre-contract and post-contract. Now pre-contract funding is uh, that for finding opportunities, securing them on option, taking them through planning, all the costs associated with getting a deal to be deliverable. That is what the pre-cost is. And then that's mainly funded by our own resources and private investors. Then the other side of the coin is what's called post-contract. So, so the average pre-contract investment or the average pre-contract cost now is around between fifty and seventy thousand. Yeah, it doesn't just get spent in one lump. As you know, as it as it gets spent, the risk comes down because you know it might start with a pre-app, for example, and then all the consultants go so like five thousand, ten thousand intervals. Um, and once it, once you've then got it to a certain point where you can enter into that contract with the housing association. It then swaps over to what's called post-contract. So now if you think about it, you've got a site with full planning or some form of planning, and you've got a signed contract with a housing association, that now has become uh, a de-risked site to a certain extent. So the funding lines for that is completely different. So we're talking with, again, senior lenders are interested in that to a certain level. Then we've got sort of SAS pension funders yeah. that we're, we're, we're working with and, and talking with. We've actually borrowed from SAS three times now. So we're That's uh, actually looking... a really good tip, isn't it, for, for developers? Um, so new developers don't know that, that, that there are uh, SAS pension pots out there that will lend out to developers if the scheme's right. I mean, yeah, you've successfully done that already, haven't you? So Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So yeah, we borrowed from SAS three times. It's, it's, it's great. It's a great source, um, and we're looking to do more of that. So like I said, once you've got post-contract, we use uh, senior lenders to um, whatever they lend to, to around about 70% loan to cost. And then we'll either get the balance from SAS pensions. But at the moment, we're currently talking with uh, family offices now as well, because the business is starting to get some real good traction. Like we've, we've got a, a decent pipeline and um, it's starting to grow quite big. So because of that, our funding lines need to actually change to make sure that our capital is is sufficient for the pipeline, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So we're now talking to some larger lenders, like, again, SaaS as well, but on a larger scale, but family offices as well at the moment. Yeah. Some of these lenders, they want, they'll look at your model and say, yeah, that looks great and we'll lend on it. But if you times it by 5, 10, yeah. 15, 20, they want to lend a large amount to, for their own funding. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. So two years ago, we had a meeting with a venture capitalist um, and they, we were talking to them, uh, and it was it was good. We had we had a meeting with like the, with the chairman, etc. But when it come down to the numbers, 
our numbers were just just too small for them. It was just, yeah, yeah. you know, when you actually think about this, right? There's so much money out there that you know when you're doing, we're talking to some investors, or some like family offices, or and they just unless we're talking about a 10 million facility mm. you know they're not really it's not really opening their eyes if that makes sense <laughs> their, their business model is different to you know your traditional kind of smaller buy to lets or smaller developments so they they have a funding line in the background which has an appetite for a return on a re- re- investment but on a large a lot larger so they rather work with credible developers like yourself um but they make you try and push you to think bigger and expose yes. the the business to large amounts so it's just about making sure your business is robust enough, which it is from speaking to you and working with you that um, you can scale up to that level. And, and but that is, it's amazing. The, the opportunity is there and people don't realize it. Um, they yeah. go in smaller, um, but actually there, there's a bigger. And one, one key thing on that, like you said, um, um, there's a book called it, but uh, there's the magic of thinking big. Okay. So I'll make a note. Look, it takes, it, it takes the same amount of energy to think big as it does to think small. So you might as well think big anyway, because even if you don't achieve your large goal, you're probably going to be achieving a lot more than your smaller goal. So look, when you think big, uh, if you, right, well, this is something I do because you see a lot of people and it's just the way most people have been brought up um, that you, you get limitations put on you. Steve Jobs said it best, doesn't he? You get, you get told, you get brought up during life. That, like, this is life is this box okay don't push the boundaries too much you know get a good job get a good education get married have kids settle down and if you don't step outside the box you'll have a nice happy life work until retirement etc and then enjoy your life um, in peace from 65 whatever onwards but the problem is this box is a very very small section of the world and of life itself when you actually realize that this box is like, if you think of minds that box is actually invisible there is no box yeah. Once you drop that and realize anything is most, you know, anything is achievable really to, to some degree. I mean, look, you know, if, if they can fly to Mars, you can do many, you can do great things. And look, I, I was driving down the motorway in, in, in Wales and they, there was this big mountain and they got a tunnel right through it. Right. I thought if they can tunnel through a mountain, <laughs> yeah. there is, if they can tunnel through this huge mountain for cars to go through, instead of all the way around it's just showing you that you don't you you you, you just don't need to be limited so that's right if you just walk around any large superstructure or any huge anything that really inspires you i just something like i'm a little bit weird so i'll walk around and i'll just start breaking it down and say right okay how did this get delivered step by step effectively into my knowledge mm. and really what that does is just remind me look any big idea you have just break it down once you break it down okay all right, you're not going to achieve a, a 200 million turnover a year company tomorrow. However, if you break that down over 10, 15 years, you realize how, if you model it out, how that is achievable. So the way we've done it is exactly that. So I've took a large goal, I've broken it down, I put systems and processes in place, I do significant amount of learning and self-development to make sure I'm consist- consistently keeping on top of trends. And I do a lot of research on larger companies and the, the CEOs of those companies and what their models are like. And then one other key thing I'd say as well, surround yourself with people that can help you get to the next level. So if you think about, if you think about it, like I watched the video with, you know, army training, yeah, military training, and they were doing an exercise. There was a huge wall, a huge wall, right? That you yeah. just could not get over by yourself. Yeah. And the way they did it is they had five people run up against this wall. The first people, they jumped down onto their all fours. Then yeah. the next one on top, and then they used them as a ladder to jump over, turned around and started helping everybody else back up. And yeah. all five of them managed to get over this large wall that one person by themselves just wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, so it's, it's the assault course, isn't it? So I'll yeah. tell you a funny story. When I, was, oh, for funny, it, when I left school at 17, I joined the British Army and I was in the oh, nice. Guard. So I was uh, one of them guys that wore the big kind of bearskins. And I remember getting oh, wow. up to Cat- Catrick and... Uh, which is up near, close to, close to about half an hour, I think, from Newcastle. And uh, I was from London, so that was like, you know, four or five hour trip away. And 17 years old, six months of training. And one of the first weeks was uh, the assault course. And I remember seeing that wall and thinking, 
how the hell do I get up that? And I remember just this guy called Harley literally just grabbed me from behind and kind of just <laughs> launched me up. Uh, but, it, you know, it was a team. I had to turn around at the top, help the next person. And it is having that discipline to support others in the team and get through it together. And it, it just it demonstrate that there's an obstacle that by yourself you might not be able to overcome. But actually, if you break it down and think as a team we can do that, here's a process and quickly you can just get through it up and over. So... Yeah. And, and it's, you can apply that to, to another, I've applied it to my everyday life and business. Um, yeah. And I think because, like, it's a, because it's a mindset. Yes, yeah, a, a mind- mindset, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think your, you, what you do outside of work has a real impact on how your business looks. So, you know, the personal development, keeping your sword sharp, um, networking yeah. with other business owners, learning from your previous mistakes taking the time to write the systems because you know every day you're so busy in business speaking to clients speaking to investors speaking to lenders speaking to your project managers speaking to your business partner you know emailing and you know you can get caught up in the business so if you take five minutes or 10 minutes or you know a day where you can just go right how does my business look and inject some time into uh improving the business your life in the business will be will be better that, that's my experience and uh, i found of other business owners as well yeah, definitely. And, and like you said, so, so for me, I, I credit a lot of the stuff I'm doing is, is to my self-development. And, uh, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be uh, hugely expensive courses if you can't afford it. I mean, I've, I've done I've done courses and I've done I've done all types of training, um, um, but but I literally have got so much value from a nine pound ninety nine book. Yeah, it's unreal. I mean, I seriously like I'll give you like, you know, there are so many people that that could just do a lot more if they just took the time to learn. And there's two tips I'll give you for that. So one thing I've done um, is I've developed a sort of daily structure. Um, it yeah. doesn't always get followed because things do get thrown up in life. However, the, I, the one common thing I've had in all of the people I've researched and, I, and I'm consistently learning about, I'm just reading a book right now from Bob Iger, the CEO, well, X, and now he's gone back in of Disney. And his yeah. book is, is fascinating, but uh, just how he's overcome all the sort of stuff they've done. But he, as well as many other good CEOs of large companies or very successful business people, were very, very aware of time management, of what they should be focusing on. So when I actually, this is an exercise, if anyone's listening and they're they're actually dedicated, I suggest you do this. Spend the next week, record every 30 minutes, set a reminder on your phone, an alarm to go off every 30 minutes, obviously until you go to sleep because you'll get annoyed, um, to write down exactly what you're doing and try and put, try and put some sort of tag next to it and what you'll find the majority of people they actually spend the first part of the morning or the majority of the day beginning of the day doing general tasks general tasks because they'll always get generated but they're easy to tick off everyone normally does to-do lists they do the general tasks first tick them off it's a feel-good thing however what you really need to be doing the way we the way i've structured it is the morning i obviously do exercise and meditation and then the morning is spent doing uh business growth tasks so i look at the whole pipeline i I look how i can progress it what's the next task that need to be done then how do i delegate those tasks who's going to be doing them that's the first thing i do every morning then it goes on then to income generating tasks what do i need to do and your business everyone's business can be different what do i need to do to generate income or what tasks do I do that will generate income at some point? Obviously, development's a lot slower, but you know that's things like working with investors or finding new investors, finding new opportunities for deals, or um, public awareness of you know, many different things. So work out exactly what your income generating tasks are, and then focus on doing those. Then what I do then is make sure I stop for lunch just to have that break, give myself a five minute breather because if doing too much at one time will just make you tunnel visioned. And then I, long story short, I make sure I do my general tasks in the afternoon. Once I've done, once I've focused on income generating and business growth tasks, because then once, once I'm doing my general tasks and just taking those off by the end of the day, you've actually done, you've actually been really productive. Whereas most people do the general and they run out of time to do the income generate and business growth. <laughs> that's amazing. That's a good, that's a great insight for our listeners. And I think what, it really highlights is although even though you're you're a property development company you're still treating it like a business right you know we see a lot of investors have business property portfolios small developments commercial conversions but they're just treating it as property and they're not looking at it as a business model 
and um, I think your structure will allow you to have much more success in your business because you're working on key elements of yourself, your business, areas within the business, um, mm. and how to operate it effectively, which is uh, fantastic. So and just time just, management. Just key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, one last point: the one thing it allows you to do more of is actually say no. So if you hear Warren Buffett, he'll say to you that the he you know, the majority of his successes has come from the skill of learning to say no. Yeah. Now. This is one thing I struggled with because when I was reading and studying from younger age, like this self-development stuff, the first book I read was Think and Grow Rich, and then I've, I've studied so many more. There's, there's books out there that will tell you just say yes to any opportunity and that comes forward. But what they're actually, there's something they've missed off the back of that, is that say yes to opportunities that will help you achieve your goal, for example. You need to, you need to, you, you need to be asking yourself, if I do this, Will it help me get to my goal either faster or more efficiently or save me potential mistakes? The worst thing you can do is say yes to every opportunity because that's actually going to distract you massively. So you need to, you need to critique these opportunities. And in fact, you'll end up finding out you'll be saying no to a lot more opportunities or shiny pennies or whatever you call them. And then that will just allow you to carry on focus. Focus is, is probably the most critical thing to becoming successful in whatever business you're doing focus and perseverance those two things i think having that discipline isn't it to to know yeah. what works for your goals i think that's, that's that's brilliant to you know if you're saying no um not because you want to be rude or disrespectful but it's at the end of the day you're working towards something and you need every day or action you take has an impact towards that in a successful way um yeah. i completely agree with that um Okay, but so let's talk about briefly uh, COVID nineteen. You know, it's going on at the moment. It's had an impact on those businesses. How are you, as a business, dealing with COVID nineteen? What What does a day look like for you at the moment? How you? I see lots of positive messages going out there. Lots of massive value. If anyone doesn't follow Dorian already, then definitely check him out on Facebook, on his Instagram as well, because he adds massive value updates weekly about what's going on with their business from a development point of view so i'd recommend following dorian but yeah tell us a bit more how your day looks and how you're getting through this and uh, how does there's light at the end of the tunnel as they say yeah thanks for that um yeah in terms of yeah so the coronavirus look i mean you know it's, it's turned um it, you know it's, it's had a, it's had an impact on the majority of businesses uh, it's just it's like from a health perspective obviously it's terrible um it's I'll, I'll be completely honest with you when i first heard about it i was one of the I was one of those people that just dismissed it. I, d I didn't think anything of it, I'll be honest yeah. with you. Um, but just goes to show, doesn't it? You don't know what you don't know. Mm. And it's turned out to be uh, much worse than most people would have believed. But so, th so that, from a health perspective, that's terrible. And my uh, thoughts are with any people that are suffering any sort of distress at the moment. But from an economic, economical and business perspective, it's, a, it's a, like a double-edged sword, really. So there's some businesses, don't get me wrong, that are going to be absolutely terrible. This is, this is kick, you know, the teeth out of them. There's going to be businesses that are going to be going under as well. Yeah. Now, for us, um, our developments, like I said, have been put on pause. Um, negotiations that we were in on from deal perspective and a funding perspective um, have all been frozen at the moment. So it's, it's, it's put a big halt at the moment on our business. That being said, we're in a fortunate position where we don't, we are not, we don't really, you know, we're in a fortunate position where we don't need money tomorrow. For example, it's not, it's not, it's not the be all or end all for us. Mm. But um, one thing we're doing is we are. Per, there's this three, there's a few things I would say to to people listening if, if they're business owners or in property or whatever. This is a perfect opportunity right now to really have a good look at what's gone wrong in your business and write these out in huge bullet points on some whiteboard or some notes on your phone or whatever and never forget what's gone wrong now or where your pain points are because like i said the majority of lessons you will actually learn come from the adversities and only right now is your business is telling you what's not working for you and what the best thing to do is write down what those things are and then try to devise some ways that you could prevent the same thing happening in the future. So you can't prevent things like coronavirus, et cetera. You can't, you can't, you can't dictate what's going to happen in the market. But what you can do is take the lessons that each, each obstacle is thrown at you and saying, right, okay. So my biggest problem right now, for example, is that I don't have any money. What am I going to do about that? 
well, I'm going to put into place uh, a business golden rule that we will not fall under X amount of months working capital, right? Mm -hmm. And I will make sure that I put that money into liquid savings away from the current account and I will not touch it for anything else other than a rainy day. So that is the prime example of looking at your existing problem, saying what you're going to do about it. I would also then, uh, and just do that across your whole business as well. But the biggest thing I say to do uh, is you, you, this is the perfect time to prioritize. So look exactly what's going on right now, what it is you really need. If you were genuinely running out of money, you know, by next week, you need to drop absolutely everything and do anything in your power to try and resolve that. Then you need to plan, you need to prioritize all the rest of the things in your business. Is there any, is there any, uh, anything you can cut back on? Is there any way that you can try and get additional revenue stream coming in? You just gotta, you've got to prioritize the best as possible. Start with the urgent and then move down your list, either red, amber, green, um, whatever. But be honest with yourself. Do not put your head in the sand and do not hide away from this. That's the worst thing you can do. Once you've then prioritized, you can then plan. So coming back to what I've said, write down your pain points, put a plan in, in process for the future as to, as to golden rules to make sure that if anything happens again, you're not going to be feeling the same pain points or they're going to be mitigated. Then plan in terms of what you can actually be doing next. You would have got the list from your prioritization. And then the third thing I would say, really, I call these the three Ps. The third thing you can do is persevere, literally. I mean, the, there's so many people in the same boat as you, and there will be people that give up. But if, you, if you've managed to prioritize and, and you are able to scrape by or get through this, and you can put a good plan in place for the long-term future to prevent this again, all the pain points, and put a plan in place to increase your, increase your chances of getting through this. All you need to do is just persevere and just carry on, carrying on. This is not the time right now to be sat down watching TV for, for, for six weeks. It is not the time to do that. It is the time to focus on your business uh, from a business perspective. Like, for example, uh, me right now, I'm in the process of writing the business plan, uh, rewriting it. And at the moment, it's about 40 pages long. And I'm going to be using that business plan to talk with family offices and venture capitalists, etc. You know, I've done a tremendous amount of business work in, even though our sites have stopped. I you know I've, I've, I've reached out and built relationships with new investors. I've put a new, I've broke down all the reasons our, with our pain points are in our business and what we're actually changing our business to prevent that happening again. I've, I've, updated all of our systems and processes you know i've, I've done a tremendous amount and re really you've got to carry on you've just got to carry on it's um that's massive value i thank you for that dorian i've really kind of taken a lot from that i think that um uh, our audience will definitely take value i think there's a lot of uh, people out there at the moment focusing on what's going on in the news and focusing on the issues that maybe have an impact and it's hard not to you know there's a lot of there's a lot yeah. of attention and emotion going around on but actually what you can do is pivot on pivot and change uh, your outlook and think you know how can we adapt as a business what can we do differently the cash reserves is massive i think even as a business ourselves we've started, said it from day i'm very risk averse i'm very calculated so i've always anticipated that there's going to be a downturn right because um you know this is that's my makeup that's how i that's how i operate so i've always kept a buffer in the business my business partner paul will, will say it you know what what what's that money for but you know it's for days like this or times like this so we can uh navigate through through the business come out the other side and and i think the fact that you're putting pen to paper and really going through in detail and then sharing that with your investors shows massive credibility a very pragmatic approach to what's going on in the economy um yeah. it's definitely a time for reflection um, but you know, speaking to a few hedge fund managers, I know you were involved, weren't you? Were you involved in the call we had uh, with the two hedge fund managers? I'm not sure if you were there, part of the the, the candle group, and they were saying basically that it was um, it's going to be short. It's going to be a short period, two quarters rather than years. So oh yeah, 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 yeah. Remember that. So hopefully that's that's a, a positive. Uh, obviously, the longer it goes on, the more of a bigger impact it's going to have. Um, but hopefully, it will yeah, be short 100%. and we get through it. Um, yeah. Cool. All right, Dorian. I think we've covered quite a lot, haven't we? So um, it's been amazing yeah. to have you on. Um, you're doing such great things at such a young age, which is really credible to yourself. Um, working investors, you know, you've got a very niche business model, which is working. You've got 200 homes in the pipeline. Uh, you're looking to do 500 homes per year. I have no doubt in my mind that you will, from spending time with you and speaking to you, 
that you that you that you'll get there. Absolutely, I believe that. Um, how can people reach out to you if uh, if you you know either social media? What, how can people touch base with you? Just find out more. Yeah. I mean, well, we're very fortunate to live in a digital world now. So uh, the best way to reach out to me really is is just by social media. So majority of my tags at social media is just at Dorian Payne Property. Um, I'm active on Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram, the main ones. I really don't understand how to use Twitter. So don't try and contact me on that. But uh, yeah, just just on those three on those three things. And if you can't, then just head to our website, www.castellgroup.co.uk with two L's and um, reach out through there as well. Perfect. I really appreciate that. And we'll put a link on our, on our social media page as well to get in contact with Dorian. All, all, all the links will be on there. Again, Dorian, thank you very much for your time. No, absolute pleasure, Joel. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. Thank you.